Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. Good day, good people. This is Brad King coming to you from the downtown Riders Jam bunker. Day seven of Corona Apocalypse, self quarantine for me. It's been really difficult as someone who is an extrovert and is used to being around people. I have not seen anybody save for the folks I walk by in the park when I'm walking my dog, and we all put our heads in our elbows look the other way and try not to cough or breathe on each other. And so things have been very weird here. Day seven, I understand why Tom Hanks painted on the volleyball. Uh, My dog is, I think, sick and tired of me having full-on conversations with him. And so I've been thinking today, what am I going to do to get through this thing, because clearly we're all in this for a while. I've already grown weary of movies and TV, can only read so much. I don't really like board games. I'm not a big puzzle person. I'm not really sure how this is all going to work out. So I started looking around, and one of the things that... I thought I would do is go back to my old video game days, computer game days, actually. So I found eight of the nine Ultima games. And if you remember Ultima, you are of a certain age. I remember Ultima, one, because I played the game a little bit when I was younger, but two, because John and I wrote Dungeons and Dreamers, which in large part, was about Richard Garriott and the development of the Ultima series, which ultimately led to the creation of the first commercially successful, massively multiplayer online game, Ultima Online. Meridian 59 had been around before, and there had been some other smaller games like that, but this was the first commercially successful one. And I thought, well, I should go back and play these, because I've never finished any of them, And but we wrote a book about it. And... The book actually came about because in 1997, when I lived in Austin, I had pitched a piece to Wired Magazine. This Ultima Online thing was 
coming out. It was in development. And the studios, Richard Studios, were down in Austin. And so I pitched a piece to Wired, and I won't say who the editor was, but the editor ultimately lost my piece in his email and never responded after this thing had got approved. So I had gone down and spent like eight hours interviewing Richard over several days and Star Long, who was the producer, and they walked me through like the entire history of the Ultima game, the entire Ultima Online um, game play. I was in the THX audio studio that was there that was like one of the only, it may have been the only Lucas stamp THX studio that wasn't affiliated either with him or with movies. Uh, you know, I got to play Ultima Online, uh, like a little demo thing where like none of the characters had clothes and stuff like that. So I had all these tapes, wrote this piece, ultimately it never runs. I keep these things with me and I go to Wired a few years later. And John Borland, who's writing at CNET, and I, who's writing at Wired, we're friends. We're having drinks one night at the 21st Amendment, which is this bar down in South of Market. Used to be a bar. Don't know if it's still a bar. Making all the, like, what are we going to do? Like, we both wrote about entertainment and technology and Napster, and we didn't really want to write about movies or music or copyright or any of that kind of bullshit. And so we're, like, making notes, and I'm like, oh, brother, I got eight hours of tapes from Richard Garriott. Like, we should do this story about how Dungeons and & Dragons and storytelling shaped the way the internet and the web developed, and it'll be great, and we already have all this stuff. We can write the pitch. We'll sell the book. It'll be amazing. And then I went home that night and looked for the tapes and realized that I had thrown them out just a few months before. I lived in this little small place in Berkeley and was like, I'm never going to use these tapes. It's never going to be a thing I'd do. So that sucked. Uh, we ultimately ended up writing the book and went back, and Richard gave us all the interviews that we needed to do, but that was just one of those, like, are you kidding me? Like, I literally had the creator of this series while Ultima Online was being developed explaining to me how everything was happening. And five years later, fine. Six years later, fine. We, we still got all the information, but I had the tapes, man. So that's what I'm doing. The other thing that I'm doing and I've talked a little bit about this, is I went on Twitter um, and started talking to writers who are who have books coming out during the coronapocalypse, whose everything has been canceled, right? Like, all of their stuff has been canceled. So that's a tragedy upon tragedies, because if you've not written a book, it, it's... Like, it's, it's hard to explain, but you do that for that creative thing for like a year, year and a half, and then when it's over, you really are sort of adrift and don't know who you are. And I've told the story before, like the day I had send on Dungeons and Dreamers to the last time, to when it's going out to, to print, I came out of my room, my friend was helping design the, my place, paint and stuff like that, uh, asked me how I was doing, and I burst into tears and went back into my bedroom for like three days. So this is a thing, right? This is a, a big deal for people. So I started putting out notes and saying, hey, man, if you got a book coming out, if all your stuff's been canceled, like, come here. Like, part of the reason that I started doing this was to help people uh, promote their projects and to talk to writers who I thought were really interesting. And so I got, like, 27 responses. So I'm going to be pumping these things out, like, twice a week for the next foreseeable future, which I'm really excited about, but also it's a little bit daunting. Um, and also I feel terrible for all these people who 
had all of this stuff canceled. So we're going to go celebrate that, and we're going to have conversations with them. Uh, and, and I hope that you guys will enjoy that. So the show's going to look a little different moving forward. I'm going to be a little more professional, which traditionally has not worked out well for me. That is not a thing I do well. But I'm, but I'm going to try. At the end of the world, I'm going to try. Now, we're about seven minutes in, and I haven't asked you to do the two things that I need you to do. The first is I need you to, if you're listening to this, go to wherever you heard it, Apple, Google, Stitcher, and leave a review. This is how people find podcasts like this. I'm never going to promote it. I'm never going to do advertising. I'm not trying to artificially build things like... I just want to do this show, and it's really helpful if you're doing it, if you listen to it, if you will help me out. The second thing is, if you go to thebradking.com, which I realize is the most narcissistic website ever, and yet it fits, go sign up for my newsletter. If you do, you'll get a free PDF of Frankenstein's Legacy, a book I did here at Carnegie Mellon about artificial intelligence and machine learning. Uh, interviewed four people uh, and talked about sort of how those things operate today, but written for regular people. Uh, But if you sign up for that newsletter over the next several months, apparently, I will be sending out updates on all of these authors who have things coming out. So it's a way to keep up with what's going on and to help support the, the writing community because that is really why I'm here. I love writers. I love talking to writers. I love talking about writing. Which is a beautiful segue, if I must say so myself, which I do, since it's just me, uh, to my next guest. My next guest, I don't know, but we worked at Wired, and we know all the same people. So I've known her forever as Jen Saul. I've just been hearing this name forever and ever and ever. Uh, She is now Jen Brick, but she is a professor now, just finished her first novel, and is in the process of trying to sell the novel. So it fits right in with the sort of season four Corona-ville that we're doing. So this is also the nerdiest writer conversation that I've ever had. Like, she and I do a deep dive, not into the process. I promised a long time ago we'll never do that. Um, But it is a deep dive into what it means to be a writer and sort of the changing landscape of professionalism and how you sell things. And even if you've been doing this for a long time, the ground is always shifting underneath you. And so we had a really good conversation about that. It was great. I feel like we finally got to have the conversations that everybody has been telling us like, oh, surely you two know each other. And we didn't. And now we do. And it was great. And I cannot wait for you to meet Jen Brick as well. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Jen. Okay, so... You and I have somehow worked with the same people at almost the same time, way back in the dot-com boom, and managed to never meet each other. I know, which which is is very strange. It is, because that was such a small world back then that you couldn't help but run into people. And I think we've sort of figured out that at one point we were at a brunch together, but if we said more than three words to each other, that it would have been... Well, it's weird to me, too, because I think we kind of overlapped what we covered as well. 
because I think you did some music. So it's very strange. But were you? But you were at the magazine, which sort of was a different planet in some ways, right? Yeah, I started at the magazine in 99, and then I came over to digital in 2000. So I was at the magazine for about a year, and then in April of 2000, I showed up at the magazine when Chris Jones, who had been the sort of music and entertainment guy, was moving to a different part of... He moved downstairs to work with whoever was... the. The music player guys. We had a music player. Back oh, then. the Sonic. Yes. yes, God, you're taking me back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah, <laughs> we bought a music player, <laughs> a right. digital music player that didn't really exist in real life. It's a very strange time. Yeah. <laughs> when did you get to Wired? Um, I started as an intern at the magazine. I think in '96 or '97. And did like a couple rounds of the internship, trying to get hired full time there. Had an interview, but the guy brought someone else in that he already knew. And then digital was like, oh, we like what you've been sending us. I sort of would send them tips that we couldn't use because of the news cycle being longer, you know? Right. Yeah. They said, do you want to come over here and do another internship? And I was like, oh, Lord, I don't think I can. How many internships does one have to do? <laughs> you know, and I'd already done one at the Guardian newspaper, the Bay Guardian. And but I thought I interviewed over there and, and they seemed really great. So I said, OK, I'm going to do one more internship. But they did pay, which yeah. is kind of rare. Right. Um, so I thought, OK, it pays. I'm just going to stick it out. And then, of course. Dan Brecky, um, who's now at KQED, he ended up hiring me as a researcher and then brought me onto the business desk. Um, but I sort of quickly created my own beat with music uh, because I didn't like writing about business <laughs> very much. Um, I don't think it was really my forte, but I, I tried. I mean, I read all this stuff about from the Wall Street Journal, and I learned how to read earnings reports and really tedious stuff. But um, it was way more fun to, you know, interview Chuck D and write about how the Internet was changing music industry. I mean, it was really it was a fun time, you know. Yeah. It, it, when I showed up and Chris was leaving and, you know, back like. I didn't get hired as the entertainment reporter. They were just like, find stuff to write about. And I was like, okay, like that seems fair. <laughs> yeah. uh, That's like about how it was back then. They gave you so much freedom. Yeah. It was great. You know? and, and Joe yeah. said the reason he was moving over to the music player is like with Napster and all the lawsuits coming, he's like, I'm not going to be writing about music anymore. I'm going to be writing about lawsuits. Um, and that was oh, why he moved. Yes, uh, I can see that. Yeah. And I thought Tedious. that stuff was exciting. Like, because it just was like, to me, it was the clash of like these sort of crazy anarchist tech people who yes. wanted to do entertainment. Uh, my favorite story was a group that used to, they had existed before the web. Um, and I can't remember the, I know the guys, I can't remember the name of the group, but they used to drop acid and do performance art on message <laughs> boards and stuff. And so the web, when the oh, web wow. came, then they could do that and go like have webcams and stuff where they were doing things live. And I actually uh-huh. went, went up and, uh, um, 
dropped acid with them on New Year's Eve one year and, like, wrote a story about it. It was amazing. It was my favorite part about that time. No, the old days of Wired. Yeah, you could you could do crazy stuff like that. I think we had a Burning Man reporter. I'm I mean, sure. you know. Brad Wieners wrote the book on it. Like, I have his coffee table book here. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> and he was a brilliant guy. I mean, yeah, it, it was a really wild time, you know, but it was... I mean, it was hard to work there. It was very stressful. I always think about, you know, when you see those articles, like, what are the top 10 most stressful jobs? <laughs> reporter. Right. You know, and then to be a reporter at like a website. Right. You know, where the deadlines are just insane. And I think I had to get in there at seven because the market had been open for an hour on the East yeah. Coast already. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it was then. And then, of course, you try to leave around three or four, but then stuff's happening over here. Right. You, you stay till five or six, and then, you know, your editor has some questions. But, I mean, at the same time, what a cool thing that you could just jump in there and make yeah. a name for yourself. Wild West, you know? Yeah. I mean, I told people, had it not been, like, had, had not coming out of graduate school at Berkeley at the time that I did... I, my career would have been, I'd have been at some local newspaper for 10, you know, like, oh, yeah. And, and oh yeah. So like I went from a weekly newspaper, got my degree from Berkeley and then like immediately start writing at Wired. And that was like, yeah. you know, 26 and probably had no business you know, having that kind of freedom. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I definitely interviewed at like AP and Bloomberg and I thought, Oh my God, I don't right. want to work here. Yeah. You know, you know, the AP job, I think it was a stringer just kind of driving your car around looking for murders. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's, you know, yeah. it's depressing, dark stuff. And here I was with all these really young, really smart people. Um, I, I mean, what a time, you know, and then, oh, going to a party at night where there's a DJ and you're being webcast in Japan or whatever right. the trend was, you know, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, what a great job, like right out of college. Amazing times, you know. This is an aside, and then, and then I want to dig, dig into your backstory. But um, yeah. so my favorite, my favorite TV show, half-hour TV show, is The Good Place, which just ended. And the, pre- uh-huh. and the premise of that book, or the premise of that show, came from a book written by a guy named T.M. Scanlon, who's a philosophy professor. And they referenced the book throughout the whole show. I posted oh. about this, and do you remember Jesse Scanlon? Yeah, I was just going to say, is that any it's her relation? Dad. No. It's her father. What a small world. Yeah. I, so she <laughs> helped me out to try to get hired at the magazine. She was really nice, and I did some research projects for her, like sidebars for magazine articles. She was always really nice to me. She, yeah, that I mean, She was the funny. first one that let me write for the magazine, because I was an editorial oh, assistant, no. and so... Oh, great. Yeah, so she yeah. was, like, and it was, again, just like what you said, like, it was like a sidebar, like, I need a box for this thing, and I was like, yeah. yes, I will do whatever you need. <laughs> I know. Yeah, you got to grab those opportunities. Yeah, there were some really supportive people over there. Yeah, but that just sort of blew me away. I'm like, holy shit, 20 years ago, I would not have, like, I didn't know your dad was a famous moral philosophy no, professor, you know, like... Yeah. Right. Well, and I just feel like Brad Wieners and all these people who worked over there, I mean, there was such brilliance, you know. Yeah. That was the, were you there when Katrina was the editor in chief? Katrina Harris? Um, I believe so. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I was so like focused on, you know, 
the day to day that sometimes I didn't know what was happening up top, but you know, opening Amy John's mail and (laughs) that would take like three days. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I was in the mail room. Let's go back. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in a rural area of Maryland on the Eastern shore. Um, What's it called? Very small. Easton is the town. Okay. Uh, Kind of on the the highway on the way to the beach from D.C. Uh-huh. Um, How big was on it? On the 12,000 people, I think, okay. when I lived there. That was about twice as big as my town, so I get it. <laughs> I win. I win. Yeah. I, I've never heard anyone say that to me, actually. <laughs> so I feel uh, like, well. Do you have brothers and sisters? Yeah, I have. They're all younger. I have two sisters and a brother. And what do they do? Um, my brother is in medical. Mm-hmm. He's an x-ray tech, which is just such a different part of the brain than what I use. You know what I mean? Right. It's, it's just funny how that works. Um, and my youngest sister, she actually got into journalism for a while and she was the community news editor at, at our local hometown paper mm-hmm. for a while. Um, and now she's doing other stuff. She's working in an office and Where she can mommy. Make <laughs> pretty hard. Yeah. And where she, you know, she has flexibility for her kids and stuff. And then my other sister, she went into advertising a bit. I mean, it's interesting, you know, and how it's kind of related, right? Yeah. Um, how three of us did something real similar and then one of us went AWOL. The other way. Into, yeah. So yeah. W- when did you start writing? Like, when did you like have a predator say, oh, wow, this is like I'm reading and writing all the time. Was that in high school? Well, I mean, my dad was really encouraging. I remember from a pretty young age, I won a contest. I think it was the American Legion essay contest when I was pretty young. Um, In our town, I think I was third grade. Wow. Yeah. You know, and you had to write about oppression or something pretty deep. And I, I think I wrote about apartheid. I mean, it was kind of, maybe I was in fifth grade. I must've been a little older, but even still, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's kind of interesting. Yeah. And, and then, yeah. In high school, I think my dad was like, you know, you're good at writing. I think you should think about focusing on that, which is sort of the opposite of most parents. Like you want to be an English major. Oh my God, what am I paying for? You know? So I'm grateful that both my parents were actually like, yeah, you should write. And Oh, that's a cool story you wrote for your creative class. And you know, what did they do? Um, so they were both teachers. Uh. My dad (laughs) taught, uh, computer programming actually Mm -hmm. at the community college, back when they had like punch cards and giant computers and stuff. And I think that sort of led to wired too, because he was a real geek and I mean, you think I enjoyed that. Yeah. I mean, you know, I know, right. I mean, we had an Apple two plus and he took my third grade class to the college so we could play on computers. And I remember this boy I had a crush on, like was holding the floppy disk by putting his finger in that circle in the middle of the part. Such, and my dad told him not to, and I was like devastated. 
it was just so embarrassing, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, he got me into like William Gibson and he was a wired subscriber. So it all kind of makes sense, you know, yeah. that I ended up there in a strange way. Yeah. It's in, I, um, in this little town I grew up in, there was a math teacher who had been a programmer in the air force and he built the, he put together and built the Commodore pets that were in our class. So this is like 1983. Wow. Uh, yeah. And, mm-hmm. and I, you know, this, we used magnetic tape. Like those pets didn't have floppy disk drives. You yes. used magnetic tape. And so I took the computer programming class and then I would go in on my lunches and he would program. Um, and then I would go over to his house like every other Saturday from like eight in the morning to one o'clock in the afternoon. And wow. we would program, right? Like, so I was on bulletin boards and stuff as like a 12-year-old. Wow. Years later, his daughter and I dated very briefly. We've been friends forever because she used to just hang around, you know, when I was over there. And she was like, yeah, you know, um, my brother and I like kind of were resentful that our father spent all this time with you. <laughs> I was going to say, I think my dad would have really liked to have you around because I didn't, he tried to get me to like programming and I, it's just not my thing, you know? But yeah. well, once it got out of basic, I became very terrible at it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, basic. Yes. Remember those dates. Well, can I ask how old you are? <laughs> I'm 47. Okay. So I'm 46 and yeah, I, I was just curious about when you were on bulletin boards. Cause I didn't really go online until college on the internet. Right. And boy, wasn't it weird with that little breathing E for the internet <laughs> explorer. And, and see, um, I had been on quantum link in, in the, in the mid eighties. So yeah, so you were advanced is that's what I was going to say. Yeah, yeah. Cause I until later yeah that's it's, pretty wow it's uh, yeah and this is my i tell this story all the time because it's just so weird and when i was in eighth grade steve who was the math teacher got sick and there wasn't anybody else to teach the programming class so they would put a teacher in the room and steve i would use steve lessons plan so i was like willow <laughs> from buffy like okay today we're gonna learn like these five <laughs> things <laughs> it's, i've told people if i didn't play baseball for a really good baseball team i would have had a decidedly different childhood <laughs> yeah right right well and i mean again it kind of just shows you how it turned everything upside down like the kids are teaching the classes and yeah. teaching their parents how to use a computer yeah what a what a weird time My yeah dad brought the, he brought the computer home it was a commodore 128 may have been a, uh-huh. may have been a commodore 64 um, and he, uh-huh. I'm, I'm 12 he literally puts the box and the modem down and walks upstairs there was no like let me help you figure this out <laughs> he was just like i feel like this is going to be important and that was that wow yeah. what a cool thing that your dad kind of did that for you that's really neat. Yeah. Uh, my uncle was into computers. He worked at Procter & Gamble. So I think that had some, there may have been some external push from his sister, like, hey. Oh, okay. Yeah. You yeah. Know? So um, you go to high school in this small town or do you, um, yes, are you thinking I about did. going to college to be a writer? Yeah. I mean, I did the school newspaper a little bit. Um and wrote bad poetry like everybody does, yeah. I think. Yeah, that's and... the sign of a future writer. Emo poetry. <laughs> yeah, I think I still have those little note cards somewhere. And But yeah, I, so then I I went to college and right. I... Where at? 
got really involved into the newspaper there. Oh, um, I went to Brown University oh, in Rhode oh. Island. You went to real college. I did. Well, yeah. I mean, barely. Like, I, they let me in mid-year. I didn't get in the fall admission. <laughs> but they had a little extra space. They would do this mid-year admission thing. And Interesting. My parents, I looked at my parents like, am I going to do this? And But then I toured it, and I really loved it. So, yeah. So, I went way so, far away. Did you, yeah. <laughs> For me. Yeah. So did you... Um, <laughs> Like if you so you just decided to like gamble that they were going to have a mid year thing. No, no, no. So it was sort of like you're not good enough to get in the fall, but we have some extra space mid year if you want to come then. So kind you of knew thing. it wasn't a like it wasn't a big gamble. No, no, you you knew, it, but it was just weird. I was like, what am I going to do for this six months? Right. You know, when all my friends are going to school or working, but then I thought, well, I'll take some pottery classes and <laughs> try to write a little bit and, you know, yeah. and work. I just worked at the bookstore, uh, in town and, you know, it ended up being good cause you kind of miss all the freshman orientation BS and right. weird drama. You know what I mean? You kind of skip all that. So maybe it was better, you know? And you went to study English? Yeah, I always well. So they don't have requirements at Brown, really. What does that mean? Uh, <laughs> um, you have to sort of take a class with writing, so they know you can write. But other than that, when I was there, there weren't really any like core requirements, and they leave it pretty open. So I mean, it was great for me. I didn't take math. Yeah. <laughs> um. But I, you know, I pushed myself a little. I took some biology and poli sci just to be like, I don't want to major in those, right? Nope, I don't. Okay. <laughs> I, you know, right. back to English. Um, and, and then I just took a million English classes and, and creative writing, which was great, you know. And then I, and I did the newspaper. I mean, so it was kind of all English all the time. It yeah. was a wonderful time, you that know. Amazing. It um, was. It was. I mean, it wasn't cheap. So. Sure. You know, I had to figure that out. And you're signing these papers when you're 18 and you don't really know what it means to be like borrowing all this money. Right. But, to go be a writer. Uh, <laughs> I, know, I mean, like, because the payback's really going to pay back those loans. Yeah. Um, honestly, though, I, you know, I think um, that luckily going into journalism was smart and not just trying to write a novel or something because then I was making money and I could pay it back. Um, and I had one of those parents that did the, when I was like, I'm going to be a writer, I want to be an English major. And my dad was like, well, you should, you should be a teacher and that way you can write in the summer. And, and so, uh which was, um, a a terrible idea. I did it. (laughs) Um, And you know, I've, I taught, middle school, high school, and college, and it's fine. But one, right. that's not how any of this works, right? Like, there's, you don't yeah. have time off to, like, just do whatever. Um, no. Two, I've told people, like, part of my problem when I sit down to write is I feel like people that have formal educations, like you, who sort of know, like, form and format and, and the canon, like, I don't know any of that stuff. So, like, I just kind of stumble through the dark to all this stuff. And I always feel like there's shit I don't know that's making me not be a good writer. I mean, and I didn't, um, but luckily 
I think, I feel like the magazine was a little more into the J school degree and maybe 100%. the online wire digital. Yeah. It was like pedigree for them. And wire digital was more like, Oh, you can learn this on the job. Let's go. Right. Come on. Write this thing. And, and so you sort of just learn by doing it, which I was lucky to have that chance, you know, um, but you also had yeah. this background of stuff from university. Right. Uh, right. I, I mean, I worked for the sort of alternative weekly at the school, yeah. but it was run by students. I mean, I never saw a faculty advisor ever. <laughs> so but weren't you taking creative writing classes? Yeah, I was, I was. And of course, reading a ton of literature. That's what um, I mean. Like I didn't really have any of that stuff. So like I've had to go back as I've gotten older and I'm like, shit, I need to read these. I know. You know like, well, I'm, that and I mean I, I I don't think you really do that till the MFA though. Really? You know, where you really look at something in terms of structure. Like how did this person put this together? So I didn't like miss from standpoint, you know. Yeah. I think undergrad was more like this book is magical. <laughs> what's, the, <laughs> what's the theme? You know? It, and it's not like how did Herman Melville structure yeah. this chapter? You know, interesting. Why did he do that? There was less of that. Yeah. Well, I feel less bad about my education now. You should. Uh, (laughs) Cause like I'm reading after Elizabeth Wurzel died. Um, we had, we had like a very, very tiny connection early in my writing career. And so I'm rereading. I don't know if you've ever read bitch. Um, I don't, know that I've actually read her stuff. I've just read about her. Oh, yeah. So bitch is it's it's uh, bitch in defense of difficult women. It's six essays. It's 400 pages long. Um, so wow. essays are like 90 pages. <laughs> That's like, not an essay. <laughs> she's both like, um, she is classically educated. Um, and then also like was, like had a deep religious training. And so these essays, which are like deconstructing patriarchy and pop culture are also filled with like, I'm going to tell you seven pages about Delilah. And I'm like, Oh shit. Like I I remember that in the Bible, but (laughs) I'm going to have to go look that up. Like, so when I I think read her, yeah. Oh God, it's so good. But it's just, she's one of those writers that I'm always like, I don't know nearly enough to have an opinion. (laughs) Like I feel like I shouldn't write anything because and you're like, oh, they clearly just Googled the definition of right. feminism right. and found, like and Googled like major feminist scholar threw in a quote and kept going. Right. So then you go, I guess I can do this. Right. <laughs> right. Whereas like that book was sort of the, you know, sort of Rebecca Walker was sort of the not original spokesperson, but like was one of the first third wave feminists who really was like Gen X and talking about stuff. And then sort of at the other end of the decade, bitch is sort of this encapsulation of what the last 10 years had been. And like, anyway, it's just really good. And it's, but it's, I always, she's just one of those people that people that have those classic educations. Like I always felt. Yes. Sort of like I was a fraud, right? (laughs) Well, I feel a little that way because we didn't have to read Ovid and like, you know, Columbia's sort of core curriculum, you know. So I, I think I've always felt like I need to catch up in, in those departments. You know, I'm reading, I just read So Sad Today and, uh. 
she reminds it's it's a book of essays um the pisces what is her name um oh i have it here i'll have to go look but she it it sounds like a similar vein we should start a book club anyway that's all i'm saying um she's one of those writers where it's like yeah she'll she'll start talking about greek mythology and you know she's in her 30s clearly so well read and in the same sentence she's talking about a drug addiction she had or something i mean very uh just amazing range you know melissa broder yes thank you yes yeah it's funny i actually do like i've done i've tried to do a book club on slack um and it works okay but now what i'm doing is reading books with my friends so like individual people will choose a book and we'll start reading it and we'll write letters to each other about the book Oh, that's a good idea. I've been just putting them on Instagram so my friends know what I'm reading, and then they'll read it, and then we'll next time we see each other, we talk about it. It's yeah. kind of the only like I, I can do. I can't do book clubs. I don't know. I feel like I got so sick of book clubs. Yeah, <laughs> it, like I, I have this. I keep all the letters that I write and receive, so I have these binders of all these letters. Oh, whoa. right. So like, I've only been doing Me. it for like six or seven years, but it's just one of those things that like. I try to only do it with writers um, because those are the people that tend to interest me. No, and not to be snobby, but being in a book club with people who didn't read the book, it just frustrates me, man. Yeah. (laughs) I can't can't do it anymore, you know? (laughs) Well, and it's also like, and this is not because we figured out who the author was, but when I'm like, well, who's like, who's the author? What else have they written? And they're like, I don't know. I'm like, well, you kind of have to take the book in the process of the sort of larger thing that they're doing. Like, um, right. So, right. Anyway, that's a lot of what the writing is about. Like, it's both like, here's, here's my impression. Here's sort of where it fits into the stuff I like. And then there's usually lots of personal stuff about how the book relates to whatever friend I'm writing them with. Uh, Oh, nice. Yeah. And so I was telling folks like when I'm 70 and like on my deathbed, I'll be able to pull these out and like be with my friends again. I mean, that's the thing. Well, and when I teach literature, I'm always asking them like, bring your own experience to it. How does this affect you? What does this remind you of in your life? Or, you know, we read Ozymandias and we watched the trailer for Breaking Bad and we talked about power and (laughs) Donald Trump and, you know, (laughs) that's what it's all about for me, you know, making it relevant. You graduate Brown in what, 95? Oh, well, mid year admissions, 96 and a half. Maybe <laughs> I took an extra semester. Yeah. <laughs> and then, so you're, uh, how do you end up out in San Francisco? So I think we talked about the Southern accent thing. <laughs> I had an accent when I got to Brown and was, there was some snobbery around that, and I worked really hard to lose it. Um, but I think there's some, maybe there's a kinship between Southerners and Californians in a way. I don't know what it was, but a lot of people thought I was from California. Really? <laughs> yeah. Um, when I met them, they'd be like, are you from California? And I'd be like, no. What? Why are you saying that? And I think it was just my attitude or I was sort of a little open hippie. I don't know. I've always been a hippie at heart. You know, the girl shopping at the the one hippie store in Maryland. You know what I yeah. mean? And I, I don't know. So anyway, 
Um, I worked at the library work study and my friend and I talked a long time one night and he gave me the names of all these newspapers in San Francisco. He's like, you have to go to San Francisco. I think you would really love it. He was from California. And so I kind of just blindly sent off a weird resume, (laughs) probably very amateur. And the, the Bay guardian had an internship and it was three months unpaid. And I thought, well, I'll try it, you know? And I think I was deciding between San Francisco and Seattle, mm-hmm. and I had friends in both places. I think people from Brown, they went to New York and they went to San Francisco yeah. and they went to LA and maybe Seattle, you know, it was right. sort of like the big, and so I kind of just went, well, who can help me get started? And I had like four grand saved up and came out here and said, if I don't like it, I'll just try something else. And here I am. You know, 23 years later, 24. Isn't it, yeah. isn't it quaint that you're like, I had $4,000, so I moved to San Francisco. Like, <laughs> that sentence could never be uttered today. <laughs> I know. Well, and I I feel for the young kids, you know, mo- trying to move here. And you see them in the mission, and I think they just have more housemates, you know, oh, yeah. than they did. Yeah. Like, they're just cramming right in there. It's the real um, world. They just go, like, we got 12 people in three rooms. Yep. We're doing bunk beds, you know? Um, but yeah, it was a lot easier back then. I mean, I immediately, you know, got a roommate, got a job in a restaurant. I mean, it was just, yeah, the bar was a lot lower. I don't know how people do it now. Yeah. So you're at the Bay Guardian around 97, something like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. You're there for three months and then you get over to Wired for an internship. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I got some clips from The Guardian, and that was just such a great first job. I mean, all the alternative weekly people, like, that's where I landed. I was like, oh, these are my people. I love it here. I'm never leaving. Um, So I did, like, a book review and a review of my ex-boyfriend's band. I mean, whatever I could do, you know. Yeah, and then I did have a connection at Wired. It was, like, my roommate's. Boy, ex-boyfriend's sister worked there. Jesus. So I know. So I, I sort of said, I talked to her and I said, well, I'm applying for this internship. And I don't know. I'm assuming she put in a good word. I don't really know. But yeah, that's yeah. sort of how I got in there. I yeah. got in because I knew uh, David Peskovitz from back in Cincinnati. We had both, we had both worked at the same weekly newspaper. Um, and, wow. Yeah. And so it was, they were just starting um, Boing Boing. Um, oh, so he gosh. was, yeah. he was still writing or not started, but they started the, the, the online version of it. Um, uh-huh. and yeah, so I just sent him a note and I'm like, Hey man, I'm applying for this job. And David sent a note and Katrina was like, yeah, we'll hire you because you know, David. And I'm like, all right, that doesn't seem fair, but I'm taking it. <laughs> <laughs> no, you have to. Right. I mean, right. I, I do feel like, Yeah. Uh, sadly, it is about connections a lot of the time, yeah. you know? So you're yeah. wired for a couple years, and then you leave when? Um, It was a, right at 2000. You know, I kind of worked myself into a disability. Sadly, I got – I usually tell people carpal tunnel because it's easier for them to understand, but it was RSI, yep. you know, repetitive yep. strain. Um, it happened and to it Lindsay was, Arendt, too. Oh, did it? Mm-hmm. Is that why she went into sort of TV more, maybe? I, know I didn't know. She was at the end of her time. At She left like just a few months after I got there. She was trying to use voice 
activated oh, software. Oh, me too. It was so bad back yeah. then. Yeah. You know, I'm so grateful that it's gotten better now and I can use it again because, boy, I wrote a review of it. And, I mean, it would just garble yeah. everything you said. Yeah. So you think, yeah. It, it was, you think it was the shitty desk placements? Because <laughs> after Lindsay left, they brought in an ergonomic specialist and, like, uh, redesigned all of our desks. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I did not know that. That's yeah. interesting information. Yeah. Um, I mean, who knows, you know, but I, I, it was devastating. I mean, I had worked so hard to get to this place of success and then it was just gone. I mean, I couldn't, I tried, you know, to work with like the workers comp people and sort of make it, can they offer me a modified position? But you, I mean, you can't do like hourly deadlines, you know, if you have this. So I, you know, I went to therapy and the therapist was like, you got to get out of there. You know, she was the one who was just like, you can't, you know, and I, it took me a while to like accept that, but I thought, okay, yeah. So, I mean, I tried everything too, like all those crazy treatments. I dipped my hands in hot wax. I did Tai Chi. I did Arnica gel. I mean, supplements, whatever I could, I could try. I wrote an article about it for salon. That was one good thing that came out of it. But <laughs> so is RSI uh, a thing that goes away or is that like with you the rest of your life? I mean, I think I'm always going to have to be really careful, yeah. you know? Um, yeah. I mean, I think everybody has to find what treatment helps them. Like if it feels very individual to me, cause I've met people who swear by something and I try it and it didn't work. And, um, I think you just have to figure out. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and you know, what job can you do too? Cause everything is so computer focused now. Right. right. Um, so what did you do? Um, so I, um, well, if you read the salon article, it's still around. I found this guy, I was at a party and this, I, I, somebody was asking me about it and this programmer overheard me and he goes, I had that. And I found this guy who like saved me. And I was like, uh-huh, you know, cause I've heard this like a million times at this point, somebody just being like, you need to go in the steam room more and like <laughs> exercise. I'm like, I've tried that you idiot. So anyway, this guy was like, it's biofeedback. And I'm like, what? That sounds like, is that that hippie thing? And he's like, no, no, no. It's, it's scientific. You got to do it. So they, this guy, Dennis Eter, he started this company, Eter pain clinics. And I really hope they're still around. Um, he would attach electrodes to your muscles Mm -hmm. In all the, like your wrists, neck, shoulders, and he would have you sit at a computer and type. And, and of course, when I first did it, it, it would measure the tension in your muscles and it would do these graphs. And I was like off the charts, like super tense. And he would just retrain you to sit without tensing your muscles. And I would practice walking down his hallway and I would practice just like doing whatever task and it sounds crazy, but you can, yeah, you can retrain yourself. Um, so it was that, and I would say like Pilates as crazy as it sounds just like core strength and, Mm -hmm. and again, like relaxing certain muscles and just paying attention to that. Um, 
also teach because you don't have to be on a computer all day yeah. and I enjoy yeah. it. Um, is that what you did right after you left wired? Um, so it's sort of complicated. I had a boyfriend in Hong Kong okay. and I was like, Oh, I can, I know it, it's a long story. We don't have time, but I'll try to summarize. Uh, I, so I thought I'll teach English over there. got a certificate and did some teaching and then we broke up before I moved, but I thought, Oh, this is really fun. Like I really actually like this. So I taught at an ESL school okay. and then went back and got my master's, my MFA. And then, uh, now I teach at city college. Gotcha. So yeah. So you, the last, you never like, went back to writing after the RSI stuff, at least as a full-time job. No, I, I, I still couldn't do it today. No, no way. It's so like KP, I, just, I, she, I had her on last episode, and, oh, and we were talking about, like, there's you either, like, the Wired people either, like, went whole hog, and now they're, like, yeah. big shot people somewhere, yeah. or it's just, like, people like me that's like, ah, fuck it, I'm going back to Appalachia. Like, that was there was too much. Yeah. <laughs> there was a whole wave of people, like, I'm going to go hike a lot <laughs> and be in the wilderness and yes. never, like come back to technology again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was a lot, you um, know? And so what do you, do you teach? I'm assuming you teach creative writing. Yeah. I teach, um, the fiction writing class and I, I've taught, I helped revive the literary magazine. Okay. Um, it, yeah, it had been around since the thirties and it, nobody was doing it. And I had a short story student go, did you know, like this college has this magazine and it's not being done. Do you want to help me bring it back? I said, yeah. So me and a couple other colleagues, um, sort of partnered up with the graphic design department. I called them and I was like, I mean, I didn't know what I was doing. I was like, do you guys use like Adobe to lay stuff out? <laughs> like, do you have a license? I was like, how do I do this? And they're like, Oh, honey, let's partner up. Like we'll do the layout in our class and you do the content. And it's been great. I mean, they produce this beautiful like coffee table book. It's a lot of fun. That's cool. To we, teach that class. Yeah. When I was in Indianapolis, I started a writing collective and one of the things we did. So the, at the university press I work at, we use a lot, like I can put out a book for a hundred dollars. Um, and so mm -hmm. and we use that technology to, to create a literary magazine in Indiana, um, in Indiana. Um, nice. yeah. And where we put it out and like, we'd have big opening parties and I had a, the only design I paid for was the cover because you need that to look nice. The rest of it, we just sort of used templates for the content, yeah. but it was just, yeah. it, was, it was a lot of fun. Like it was our fate. Like we published a lot of people's first stuff. Um, yes. Isn't that such a joy yeah. to go to the party and they, they're so excited and they've invited friends and they'll buy like 10 extra copies. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's such a joy, you know, there's nothing better than that. And I think about, you know, I did a zine in the nineties <laughs> right. and launch party at the makeout room. And I mean, it kind of, and then I was really into zines for a while. I still am, you know, I mean, right. There's so many ways to to write. It's just beautiful. Yeah, to me, we have a, one of the librarians um, here at Carnegie Mellon has a zine cart where she goes around to the classes and has like all of the stuff to make zines and will teach kids like, here's how we wow. used to do this. 
Wow. Yeah. And to the college kids? Yeah, to the Carnegie Mellon oh. kids. Oh, that's amazing. Isn't it though? Like one of the great joys of my life is being at an institution like this where the kids are smart, they're highly driven, um, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. CMU is like this smash between theater and music and drama and like hard science. So you get these, re- I mean, it, it is sort of wow. like the best of what we hope technology would have been, you know, before the dumpster yeah. fire that is our world today happened. Um, so I feel like I got to go into the utopian bubble and be like, oh, no, 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 here, here is where it happened. <laughs> like it sort of destroyed publishing, but now I'm going to go help these kids. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Create stuff. Yeah. yeah. So you're one of those wired escapees then maybe yeah. where you fled to art. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yeah. So, um, and you, you're now like along with writing, or I mean, along with teaching, you finished a book. Yeah. I did working on a book. Uh, No, it's, I I hope it's done. I mean, (laughs) you know, it's never done. Right. Right. But I think it's done. Um, yeah, it's a novel and I have been sending it to agents and it's been, it's been a journey as they say. (laughs) Yeah. That process is rough. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to be positive because I think, if you're negative about it, you're going to give up, you yeah. know, cause the odds are just insane. Yeah. And I think you just have to love writing and love your book, which I do. And I think enough of my friends love it that I feel like they keep me going, you know, they're like, someone's going to do it. Someone's going to publish that book. But yeah, I've sent it out to, I mean, do you want my stats? Are we going to go there? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> okay. I think, uh, cause I, you know, I, I guess I'll start by saying, I think you and I have said it's like fight club. Uh-huh. You know, the first rule of fight club is no one talks about fight club. Right. I feel like I'm not supposed to talk about this process. It's like, and it's weirdly secretive and there's all these unwritten rules that are broken left and right. But, but I, so I feel weird talking about it, but then I thought, well, if I can help somebody else, I mean, get through this crazy wilderness. And it's different for, uh, I do nonfiction. It's totally different for nonfiction. Totally different. Yeah. You write a proposal, right? And you haven't even written the book necessarily. And then someone goes, yeah, so great. I actually, right? I finished my book. I raised money on Kickstarter and finished the book. Um, although I have to edit it. Um, but it was, it got enough good feedback from the sort of editor friends that I had that I thought, and it's about Appalachia and like, I know JD and, um, of course. Do you know JD Vance? I read that book. Yeah. Yeah. We met on Twitter. People would try to get us to fight and then we just sort of became collegially friendly and like, um, I'm a fan of Appalachia. And so liberal or why, why did they think you would fight? That's interesting. Um, because his take is one that's based on some old, social science premises, right? um, But but anyway, like, yeah, so I, I put together a spreadsheet. My friend, Jane Friedman, we used to be the publisher of writer's digest. And so she was like, here's the best way to go about doing this. I got Friedman. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Jane and I are from Cincinnati. So, nice. uh, so I've got the um, writer's digest and I got the agent's digest. I made a spreadsheet. Uh, I, I went through and I have like 170 agents, well, 170 agencies that did creative nonfiction, like the kind of stuff that I do. Wow, and then I went, went to each, each website and I found the author or the agent 
that said, mm-hmm. and that probably wintered it down to about 125. Uh, right. I wrote, I, there's a book called Thinking Like Your Editor, it's written by two agents, and they're like, here's exactly what a query letter should do. So I yes. literally just did the four paragraph query letter. Yes. Um, I had about a 39% rate of people that asked to see the book. Oh, that's great. Or that that's asked great. To see the, anywhere between the first 15 and 50 pages. Um, now, isn't it? That is an F, but that's great. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Oh, when I, when I tell my friends that, they're like, what? And I'm like, I know. Like, I know this is not. The book ended up getting picked up, but I had um, of the, I had about 20 rejections that came with. Like, feedback. And like long, thoughtful feedback. That's um, great. And, and most of it sort of told me what I already knew, which is that the market was now a little saturated with this stuff and that it would be harder to sell that. But oh, that oh, bummer. It, it is, but yeah. it's not right. Like I'm going to publish it myself and I already have the Kickstarter people. So, um, yeah, like uh, when I, sh- I give my spreadsheet to every nonfiction writer, I know I'm like, you just go, this is how you do it. Like, nice of you. I mean, cause that's a valuable Well, I just spoke with somebody, a friend of a writer friend who's published a bunch of books. She just got her agent after a hundred, over a hundred queries. Oh, yeah. Over over like 15 years. Yeah. And she sort of was just steadily revising it based on whatever feedback she got. And she nailed like the biggest agent. And, And... and it was sort of a Hail Mary at the end of her process. So yeah. she's like, never give up. Keep trying. It's weird. It's a strange process. <laughs> Keep going, it you is. know. And the other thing that I did was every everybody who replied, even the ones that just gave me like a form thing, I sent them a thank you. I'm like, look, I'm an editor. I know saying no is not as fun as saying yes, but I appreciate. And I had several editors say, send me your next proposal. After you wrote the thank you note. Yeah. Right. That is smart. Now, I haven't sent a thank you to the forms, but I, I do if there's any sort of yeah. personal. Well, there's a lot of ghosting, too. I mean, yeah. I, yeah. I've i only gotten like – so I think I've sent it to 36 people, and I've only gotten seven rejections, you know, because yeah. of the ghosting factor. But I think I've got like a 25% – that's query rate. Yeah, which is good where they ask for that's the, super good. The full. Yeah, I mean I was just looking at it today like, oh, that's pretty good. Pat self on back. Yeah. Like again, a failing grade, but success when you're And like I query. played I'm a baseball player, so like 3 out of the best players in the world, 3 out of <laughs> you know, they only get 3 out of 10 times on base. So when I was at 38%, I'm like I'm the greatest nonfiction proposal writer of all time. Yeah. It is like baseball. That's a good analogy, yeah. actually. Yeah, it's not like yeah. it's not like school, <laughs> right? And I mean, I've actually so the feedback I've gotten so far from I've gotten a couple of rejections with feedback, and they said we don't know where to sell it. And it's interesting that two of them said that, but I'm kind of excited about that <laughs> because I'm like, yeah, because it's unique. It's not like everything else out there you know i feel like there's so many fiction books right now like girl in the window girl on the train girl under right. the train i don't know right. do we need another right but well and that was, getting, little, that was a little you know. bit like the feedback that i got right like there's just there's not a place there's just not a place in the market for it and like you can't get upset about that 
No. And I think, well, one of them said, if I can't think of five editors I want to send it to right away, I don't take it on. And she's like, it doesn't reflect on your book necessarily. It's just like, I don't know where to sell this. Right. And the other was like, yeah, you have a compelling story. Like I like the structure. I'm not sure who I would send it to. Cause I, I, I will admit the structure is, is not traditional. It's a, it's a, it's not your typical literary mystery, you know? Right. Um, right. which I like, but I think it's going to make it harder for me, you know, yeah. in some way. But that's why, um, you know, I always tell folks like, that's why that's when you start going to like small publishing houses, because yes. if it's weird, right. you know, that's, that's where you got to go. Cause the publishing yeah. world is not set up to handle niche publication anymore. I know. Yeah. And I did. And, and I talked to one guy who's published all over the place, like memoir fiction. He's doing a graphic novel and that's cool. I hate people he, like that. <laughs> I know he's so talented. He's a friend of a friend and you know, you never know who's going to help you too in this process is what I'm finding. Like he's a friend of a friend. I think I've met him once seriously 20 years ago and he's like, Oh, I'll have coffee with you. And then he's like, Oh, here's two names of P agents. I know just tell them I sent you. I mean, this guy does not have to help me. Right. right. And like bent over backwards. And then there's someone else who you think, Oh, they're definitely going to help me. Like we have all this history and they're sort of like, yeah, why don't you Google around and, yeah. <laughs> and I get it. I mean, I think it is kind of a personal thing to give somebody access to your agent, you know, cause it, it reflects on you. Like you think this writer's good and you're introducing them to your agent, but it's just kind of random, right? Who helps you and who doesn't, you know? Yeah. I get, so my analogy, analogous situation, I've been on the board for, for South by Southwest for like 20 something years. And, um, I, I don't, I don't typically introduce people there because I think part of the reason yes. they like me is that like, I do work for them. Like I am not using it as a way to get access into other things. So whenever people uh, ask me to like, Hey, can you introduce me? I sort of have to politely say like, I don't really do that. Um, yeah. and I get it, you know, um, I'm the opposite with books. <laughs> What's that? I said, I'm the opposite with books. I'll give anybody anything I have with my writing stuff. It's like, this business sucks. You know, like we got to help you each know. other. <laughs> well, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, what a business, you know, where ghosting is like the norm. I feel like it's like internet dating these days, although I don't do it, but it's what my single friends tell me like, oh yeah, he ghosted me. I'm like, what? It was months. Yeah. Just ghosted you? Like... Okay. I have, you a, know, you have, a, I'm, I'm so excited to read your book. You know, I had someone say, I want an exclusive, like, it sounds amazing. Please don't send it to anyone else for six weeks. I had this like great start where the first two queries got this like feedback like that. And I was like, Oh, this is going to be a piece of cake. Right? All right. And then like, you know, radio silence where I'm like, Oh, and I didn't know that like ghosting was, like what a lot of people do. <laughs> so I, I, I was sort of trying to, I waited cause I was like, should I send it out anywhere else? I don't think so. And yeah, it's, it's just, it's like dating, right? Why didn't they like me? Yeah. Did I say something? Did I do something? <laughs> it's, so I follow probably, 
I don't know, 250 agents on Twitter. And they have a total, like, they're like, we have so many things. Like, we can only yeah. reply to X amount of things yeah. a day or else we'll never get to so read all the stuff. Yeah, I just feel, I feel for them. And I, you know, I've read a lot of articles, obviously, about, like, during the day, they're they're working on their current clients. They're making phone calls and emails and negotiating. And then if they're going to read the slush pile, it's nights and weekends. And I'm thinking, are these people like Hercules? I mean, how are they living a life? Like, yeah. what a what an industry to be in, you know? So I totally get why that's the way it is. It's just unfortunate, right? Yeah. But the industry had to go that way. And that's you know? I always send an email, even if it's a form, because oh, yeah. know, when I worked at Wired, part of what I did was went through the, like, part of my job was to go through whatever contact, like, form email stuff that we got. So I'm like, somebody somewhere is reading this, and you just never know. Maybe this intern in 10 years is going to remember that I sent this, and they're going to be yeah. an agent, right? Like, yeah. you just don't know. Well, and I've also read about people a year after they send it to an agent, the agent emails like, I'm so sorry I haven't read this. Is it still available? And right. then like it's their agent, like they want it. Right. You know. So yeah, it's bizarre. Um but I it's probably a lot of fun to be an agent in a lot of ways, you know, if you're a workaholic. Um just kind of discovering new writers, right? I mean, yeah. I mean in another level. <laughs> I'm actually very – yeah, when, if I was 26, yeah. yeah. Like now that I'm 47, right. I'm like, I do not have the energy and or patience. No. Because the first time some asshole sent me a thing that was like, I reject your rejection and you're, I don't, you don't know anything, I'd be like, yeah, I quit. <laughs> I'm yeah. I'm out of here. Life is too short for that <laughs> horse shit. You are sort of a public figure slash target, right? Yeah. Oh, I hear yeah. horror stories from all the time, just like the terrible things that people will say. And part of the reason I got the high success rate, at least by the few emails that um, sort of mentioned it, was they were like, this is a professional packet. Like, very clearly, you are not somebody that's just like, I'm going to be a writer and like put some shit down. And Oh, right. Yes. Yeah, I've gotten, I mean, I've gotten good feedback on my query and stuff. Um, yeah, it's just, it's a zoo, you know, it's it interesting. Yeah. And, and well, and I also have sort of been thinking about, you know, if they don't want to have to do any edits either, right? Because there's just no time. They want it to be done, right? right? And, and And feel like, okay, proofread, sent to printer. And if it's not... They have to be super invested, right? If you've never published a novel, right. they have to really believe in it and want to work with you for a year or more on, you know, revise and resubmit. And yeah. so, yeah, I mean, I can see how it's hard to get the first one done, yeah. you know, That's um, and you got with nonfiction. <laughs> yeah. The next two I'm gonna do, I'm just doing the proposals in the first couple chapters, and um, if I don't get response, like I'm fortunate because I, you know, because I work at the press, I can actually put my own stuff out, and I don't need to make a living out of it. You know what I mean? Like I can still yeah. do the. We called it um, professional amateurism. Like that was that was sort of what the writing 
um, thing that I built in Indianapolis was that we have layers of editing, we have designers, like we work with people, but this is you're not going to make you're not going to make a living off publishing in our literary journal. But what's right. in there is going to be good. Right. And well, what writer does make a living from books anymore? I mean, right. I don't think when you break down the six figure advance, you know, over five years or whatever, right. I mean, you can't quit your job and, right. you know, go write in a cabin for the next 10 years. It's not going to pay for that. Right. You know, my ex-wife was a, uh, she trained as a ballet dancer and she, she used to say, um, the way you become a ballet dancer is to marry somebody rich. <laughs> like, and yeah. I feel like that's a little bit like what it takes to be a writer today. <laughs> no. And it's hard not to be resentful sometimes where you're like, man, <laughs> well, of course they're a writer, you right. know, but, but then, I mean, there's people who work their butts off at night and write until they get the first one done. It wasn't George Saunders. I think he was discovered in the slush pile at the New Yorker. He has a crazy story, if I'm getting it right, where I think he had an office job and and sort of the New Yorker got interested and, and kept saying like, well, not this one, but send us another story. And he would send another. And he was getting like feedback and then that editor left, and he was like, oh, my God. Oh, no. <laughs> but then the next editor was the one who said, you are brilliant. We are publishing this, you know. So there's stories like that, too, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. And that's the thing, right? Like, at the end of the day, you just be professional, and you just keep going, or you quit. Yeah. Like, there's well, only do, two choices. You can't not write, you yeah. know. And I know, like, I am a meaner person when I don't write and I go a little nuts uh -huh. if I have written something in a while. So, you know, I have a deadline on Friday. My friend and I are going to exchange nonfiction essays. We're kind of branching off a little bit. Good for um, you. Welcome back you, to the club. You, thank you. You know, <laughs> you, <laughs> I know nonfiction. What am I doing? Um, it's experimental. It sure. wouldn't fly at once. But <laughs> no nut graph, you know. Right. <laughs> Listen, it was great to talk to you. Um, the yeah, two times, both here and the other time that we chatted. Yeah. Uh, and good luck. Yeah. And if and when the book gets picked up, you will let us know. Oh, definitely will. Definitely. Thanks you for having a, me. You have a good rest of your day, and we'll talk again soon. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye, Jack. Bye. There you go. The nerdiest writer conversation that we've had in 43 episodes, which I just think is the best. Remember, if you liked the show, you're going to go leave a review for me. You're going to go to thebradking.com. You're going to sign up for the newsletter so that you can keep up to date on all of the books that will be coming out over the next several months by writers. Many of these are first-time writers or early in their career should be great to support them, which is really what this show is about. So I hope that you are able to do that. I hope you're staying safe, wash your hands, social distance, all of the things. And until the next time, I will see you around the internet.
Talmor is my home. My family have worked the land for generations. My gran says the island does not belong to us, but we belong to the island. And we must be ready for a great evil is coming. And death follows with it. Listen and subscribe to the latest season of Undertow, The Harrowing, a Storyglass production presented by Realm, available wherever you get your podcasts. Nowadays, trends and news cycles change faster than we can blink. But there are some things that withstand the test of time. And if you're looking for a connection to something timeless, and maybe also a glimpse of life at a slower pace... I believe everyone can relate to the very human experiences explored in Jane Austen's novels. And that's where I come in. My name is Alison Larkin. I'm a writer, comedian and narrator and host of The Jane Austen Podcast with Alison Larkin. I spent a lot of my childhood in the part of England where Jane Austen lived and wrote. And now that I live in the States, nothing gives me a sense of homecoming quite like narrating her books. On this show, you'll listen to award-winning narration, I'll give myself a pat on the back for that, as well as conversations with actors, writers and other fascinating people who all share a passionate love for Jane Austen. So please, join me as we embark on a wonderful journey through Jane Austen's work. Be sure to listen and subscribe to The Jane Austen Podcast with Alison Larkin wherever you get your podcasts.